Um, I'm super excited this morning. Uh, I get to finish a series that we've been on for a couple of months. And I love starting series and I love finishing series. And so I'm excited this morning to get to finish this Life at the Lake series that we've been in for, you know, two months, a little more. And it was interesting because when we started this series a couple months ago, the weather was beautiful outside. Like, you guys were at the lake. I mean, literally, you're going to the lake. It was warm out, and, and maybe it was easier to cast this sense of what Jesus was doing with his guys in, in, the, in the Gospel of Mark around the lake. You know, that, that lake life, when you, when you get away from all the normal, the noise of life, and you go out to the lake, and, and you sit around the campfire at night, and, and, you, and you see some stars, and you hear the crickets doing what they do, and, and you're having these conversations with your family, with your friends, and sometimes those conversations go to deep places, and it's just like, it's awesome, right? That's why we go back to the lake over and over again. And that's what Jesus was doing with his guys. He had this season where it was like the, 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 the lessons he wanted to teach them, the things that he wanted to talk about, were wrapped around life at the lake. And then it's, it's fortuitous because, um, because the weather here has changed, so lake life might seem like a distant memory at this point, unless you're an ice fisherman and you're going to the lake to do that, and I don't get that at all. But, but it's interesting because in, the, in Mark chapter 8, and that's where we're going to be this morning, if you want to dig that out, Mark chapter 8, the, um, the, 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 the tone changes as well. Where Jesus has been having this life at the lake conversations with his guys, it's like he hits this apex or crosses this hump and Mark chapter 8 is really this, this hump. The language changes. The classroom changes. Up till now, the classroom has been a boat. They get in a boat. They have these conversations. Jesus has some things he's been wanting to teach them. And he's had lots of conversations, taught lots of things, stuff about obedience and generosity, power, multiplication, compassion, forgiveness, legalism, and a bunch more. And we just picked a few that we were going to cap on. But in Mark chapter 8, the, the, the classroom changes from boat to, to the road. And the language changes from at the lake to on the journey or along the way or as we were going or on the road. The classroom changes, the language changes, and it seems like the intensity changes. So again, if you're thinking lake life, you're having these... Uh, <clears throat> leisurely conversations around the lake about these important things and it's just fun. But in Mark 8, Jesus lands this massive question on his guys and that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We, we've entitled this, this morning Question at the Lake because Jesus lands this massive question on his disciples because the intensity seems to change. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, hey, I've spent time with you guys but now we're going to get laser focused not like Jesus wasn't focused, but laser focused on why I came and the mission that I have. His mission is to go to the cross. We know that now. His mission is to die and to rise again. And his, his, in, in Mark 8, Mark records this moment where it seems like Jesus asks this question and it changes the tone of the mission. It's no longer really conversations at the lake. It's not like we're on a mission, guys, and we're moving there, and we're, we're flying there at rapid speed. And he's got all kinds of lessons they have to pick up. Matter of fact, it's at this point that Jesus begins talking over and over again about him having to die. 
he's telling his guys, and they don't, they don't get it. We read the accounts. They're kind of lost on it. Like, what? what is he talking about? But he talks about having to die. He talks about moving towards this, this death and crucifixion. And, 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 and this death language becomes part of the regular example and a regular language in where they're going. But it's at this moment in Mark chapter 8 that Jesus asks this huge question. And I'm going to say this a few times today because I really want this to land in our brains. But this question is really wrapped around the idea of, do you believe in this? so strongly that you're willing to wrap your whole life around it? Do you believe in me so strongly that you're willing to wrap your whole life around it? That's really the question that he's going to ask, but we'll get there in a few minutes. It's interesting because uh, you, me, we, we uh, do believe so strongly in some things that we do wrap uh, portions of our lives around it, or maybe even our whole life. Matter of fact, um, yesterday... Uh, I think, right, was the first day that a bunch of uh, people could dress in um, funny colored clothing uh, and carry a certain type of thing with them and, um, and go out. And, uh, and it's interesting because I was at Cabela's a couple weeks ago and they had this stuff on sale, these big jars, containers, tankers of um, uh, deer pee. I don't get it. I'm from California. It's like, like you forgive me for that, you know. I don't get, but but it's interesting because some of these uh, guys, they, they, I mean, gals, people, they they believe so strongly in this concept that they're willing to pour. <laughs> okay, right? They believe strongly if they're going to wrap their some of their life. Are you with me? Is this making some sense? Have you ever seen this? Uh, I want this concept to, I want to be on the same page with this, uh, you and I, uh, on this concept of wrapping our lives around stuff we believe in, but have you ever seen this TV show? I mean, I'll confess that I am, um, I watch a lot of TV. Is that, well, you, you'll forgive me later. Um, and there's this show that is called, maybe you've seen it, just show me if you have, called uh, something like Doomsday Preppers. Have you seen? Okay, so some of you guys are here. You've seen this. So if you've not seen it, that's okay. Let me show you just two commercials from uh, one of the most recent seasons, just so we're on the same page with this. What are you gonna do when you ain't got no water? What are you gonna do when you ain't got no food? What are you gonna do when you can't call nine one one? We're all gonna grab a chicken and run down the road. Oh! I have not worked in 12 years because I prep. There's so many families like us. The new season of Doomsday Preppers coming this fall on National Geographic. I'm preparing. I'm preparing. I'm preparing. My family. A massive earthquake. Terrorist attack. Dirty bomb blast. Global pandemic. I know something's going to go wrong. Am I nuts or are you? It's off with back-to-back episodes, Tuesday, November 13th at 9 on National Geographic. Okay, we're, we're not taking a vote this morning, the am I nuts or are you? We're not voting, because whatever you think about these folks, whatever you think is completely up to you to think that, whether you think they're, uh, they're nuts or whether you think they need to do a new hobby, or maybe you think they're the only sane ones out there, that's fine. The whole point is that these folks believe so strongly in something that they've wrapped their whole lives around it. I love that quote that one guy says, I haven't worked in 12 years because I prep. <laughs> 
Right? He believes so strongly in this concept that something bad is going to happen. He wraps his whole life around it. And they've wrapped their families' lives around it. I, I, again, that phrase, it always made us chuckle a little bit, right? We're going to grab a chicken and run. Um, they, they've wrapped their families' lives around it. And if you, if you see the show and you can picture this, they end up wrapping very often their neighbors' lives around it, their communities' lives around it, their homes reflected. They've, they've got barricades and bunkers and underground and all this stuff because they believe so strongly in this idea that they wrap their whole lives around it. Okay, is the plate set? Are we on the same page? Because I want to take us to Mark chapter 8 and jump into this question that Jesus asked. Uh, verse 27 is where we're going to start this morning. We'll be here for a little while, so I'm going to keep that open. Mark chapter 8, verse 27. <clears throat> it says, And Jesus began to teach them... I lied. Let me back up. There we go. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, there's that phrase, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. Let's pause there for just a second. I don't want to skip this. Sometimes we just skip this stuff. But Jesus asks kind of a hard question. He looks at his guys and he says, hey, who do people say I am? What do your friends say? What do your spouses say? What does the community say? What, what, you got your ear to the ground. What are you hearing? Who do people say I am? And they respond with a pretty good answer. Matter of fact, this is not the big question. This is just like the intro to the big question. Jesus just kind of getting his guys warmed up a little bit. They answer with a pretty good uh, churchy Sunday school answer. They, they say, uh, John the Baptist, and some say Elijah, one of the great prophets. And Some of you probably know who those people are. But, but really, as a category, those were the, the great men of God. The, the phrase might be, uh, Jesus, people are saying, like, you're one of the greats. You're one of these great men of God, along the lines with these other great men of God. That's what people are saying. They're saying good stuff. This is great. We love it. Like, your, your popularity polls are pretty high. You're, you're one of these greats. You're one of the great men of God. Jesus asks the question. They give a cultural answer. So I'm interested... And uh, this is, I know, kind of awkward because I'm actually going to ask for a verbal response. So now you're, now you're freaked out. Um, some of you are excited. You've wanted to talk to me for a while. Um, if Jesus were in our auditorium this morning and he asks the question, Hey, North Point, who do people say that I am? What do your spouse say, your friends say, your coworkers say, the, the guy at the hospital say, the person at your, your shooting range? What, who do people say I am? How would you answer that question? What would you say? A good person, the louder you shout, the easier it is for me. I, too much like Depeche Mode in the 80s. A good person that, Jesus, they say you're a good person. Okay? A part of God that came in human form. And a very theological answer. Good. Savior, I heard, and? Is that what I heard double over here too? Okay? A prophet. And maybe even a good, great prophet. Some would say maybe along the lines of Abraham, Moses, Muhammad, yet another prophet from God, okay? The guy, the guy who has a birthday at Christmas, okay? Very good. What else? I heard teacher, like a great teacher. Jesus taught some great principles to live by, run a family by. And then I heard the way, the truth, and the life. 
Okay? How else would people, your friends, answer that question? Your coworkers answer that question? Son of God. I don't know. Yeah. Somebody who died for our sins. Okay? Any more before I... You've got it burning on your tongue. If you don't say it, you'll be... It's interesting because if Jesus asked this question of us today, these are the answers that we would toss out. But it's interesting because Jesus goes on in Mark chapter 8, in verse 29 to change kind of the, the, the object of the question. So he asks this question. They give kind of a cultural answer. We've just done that. And in verse 20, uh, 29, it says, And he asked them, Okay, but who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? And Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Okay, so we got some strange stuff happening then. He changes the question. He says, okay, I'm not interested in what others say about me, but that was a good run up. I'm glad to warm you guys up. What about you? Eyeball to eyeball. What about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter, Peter's, Peter's like my favorite disciple because Peter doesn't often think, if you, if you read some of his, you know, when he pops up, he doesn't always think first. He just sort of acts first. And I love that because, um, I'm looking around real quick, because it reminds me of junior high boys. Right? They don't always, they just, whatever's in here often comes out right here. You know, I just, I love that. There's something so refreshing about that. It's not a, not a filtered response or a controlled, you know, thought. And Peter's that guy. He just, he just blasts out with this, with this confession. He says, you're the Christ. And, and some translations use the word Messiah. You're the Messiah. And, and that's language that maybe we're, we're just kind of, it's not part of our normal language. We're not really sure what all that uh, means on an average day. But, but Peter throws out what, is, in essence, is really kind of the right answer. But then Jesus tells him, don't, don't talk about this. Don't go and tell people this. And the reason, I think, for that is because, yes, Jesus was Christ, Messiah. The literal translation of that phrase is the anointed one. So in essence, Peter is saying, Jesus, you're the guy that we've been waiting for for hundreds of years who God has sent to restore the relationship between us, Israel, and God. Because it was broken years and years and years ago, and we've been waiting for you to come, and we're so glad you're here. Woohoo! Okay? So, so they're excited. Now, the, the problem, the challenge is that this concept of Messiah or Christ or anointed one had gotten all mixed up with cultural and political realities. So the Jews in Jesus' day, the nation of Israel, was waiting for this military political leader to show up. And, they, and when Peter says, you're the Messiah, you're the Christ, you're the anointed one, most likely Peter is also saying, and we're ready for you to pull out that sword and start stabbing Romans and kick that political government out of here because they're driving us nuts and you're going to restore Israel to what it was when it was this political power a few hundred years ago before we messed it up and ended up in all these uh, exiled places when we were owned by other people and we're still owned and, and we know you're going to kick everybody's butt and you are going to have Israel be like your nation and we're going to rule the world again. You kind of see the... The difference there? This political military approach. That's what the common person had thought when they wrapped this idea of Messiah in. So Jesus says, hey, don't, don't go talk about this because over the next number of chapters, Jesus unfolds what, what, what he's going to be in terms of Messiah, at least the first time he came. He will come again. 
And we read in Revelation, we will see this military leader. There will be a restoration of a kingdom, and we can read about that in Revelation. But when Jesus came to earth the first time, he was going to serve, and he was going to suffer, and he was going to die, and it was all about restoring my spiritual health and God because I was broken, and I needed somebody to fix that for me. And so Peter gets it mostly right, which is why Jesus says, don't go on talking about this. Now, in your worship bulletins, I forgot to say this earlier, there's uh, some extra verses in there. If you're interested in reading more about this concept of Messiah, I put down just a handful of verses. There's hundreds of them, but these are just a few. And also, there's some other verses in there we'll talk about in a second. But the idea that Peter claims, he says, when Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Peter barks out with this answer that seems very, very uh, right and is and is and is and is a good confession. So, if Jesus were sitting in this auditorium this morning, and he had asked us the question a few minutes ago, "Who do people say I am?" and you said these things, and then he looks you in the eyeball and he says, "Okay, how about you? Who do you say I am?" It's no longer good enough to to bank on what your parents have said about me. It's no longer good enough to to bank on what your wife says about me. Oh, she's very religious. My wife is religious enough for both of us. It's not good enough to just bank on what your life group says or or maybe even what the pastor says. Uh, I ask my pastor to pray for me every week. That's awesome. But Jesus is looking you in the eyeball and he says, who do you say that I am? And in essence, he's asking this question. Do you believe in me strongly enough that you're willing to wrap your entire life around it? Do you believe in me strongly enough that you're willing to wrap your entire career around it? Do you believe in me strongly enough that you're willing to wrap your whole checkbook around it, all your habits around it, all your interests and your passions and your goals and your dreams around me? Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Jesus leaves us with a problem because he doesn't leave us with the option of saying that Jesus was just a good teacher. See, I think that's a very safe, culturally acceptable answer. Jesus was a great moral teacher. He taught some great things. I really like to live by the principles that he laid out because it helps me be healthier or happier or whatever. But the challenge is that Jesus didn't leave that alone. See, Jesus made these audacious claims to be God. That, that's a problem. That's a problem for everybody because we have to deal with that reality. Had Jesus never said anything like that, we would probably be very comfortable saying he's a great teacher. And we'd come and we'd, we'd read about the stuff that he said and we'd try to live the stuff that he said and it would be the end of the day. And quite honestly, I think that that's easier. But see, Jesus presents this problem. He says, I'm God. And, and, and he was clear about it, and he said it a number of times. I just want to look at one in the book of John. You can flip there if you want, or I'll just read it to you. It's real short. But, but in your worship uh, book folder, there's a number of these sections because Jesus said this often. He, he made this claim to be God in a culture that just did not do that. Like in the last few hundred years, we've had a number of people step up and say, you know, they're a Messiah, they're God in our culture, whatever. We, we often write them off as, you know, maybe needing um, uh, some professional help or some kind of um, maybe medication or they're just, you know, they got some issues or um, maybe they're just trying to make a name for themselves. We write them off as that. But, but in our culture, you can make a claim like that and you're not going to get probably killed for it. 
but in the culture in which Jesus was walking around and touching people and hanging out to make a claim that you were God was, was you saying, like, I want you to kill me. And the people who heard him make these claims, like, they understood that. Check it out. John chapter uh, 8. Verse 58, Jesus has been having this conversation with the religious leaders, and they're doing this in a very public place. They're in the temple, so it's not like it's a behind closed doors, five people having a conversation. There's, I don't know, a hundred people, more, a little less, surrounding, listening to this conversation. And if you remember, people love to listen to Jesus have these arguments and conversations with the religious leaders because he often got the best of them. Or, or always and, and, and it just I think it gave the people a giggle and so they were listening to this they were interested in this and this is they're, they're, they're the religious leaders and Jesus are talking about Abraham and Jesus is basically saying yeah I, I was there when he was there and they're like how is that possible you're not even 50 years old Abraham lived you know a couple hundred years ago and this is what he says in verse 58 in the middle of this conversation that I'm dropping into says Jesus said to them truly truly I say to you before Abraham was I am and sometimes that phrase, I am, gets lost on us. We think it's a badly constructed sentence, but it's not. It's Jesus invoking God's special name. Back in the day when God said, hey, Moses, I want you to take the people out of Egypt. Remember, let my people go, that kind of stuff, prince or whatever. And, and so, and so but Moses is like, how am I going to do that? How are they even going to know that I'm from you? And God said, don't sweat it. Use my name. He dropped my name. I want you to name drop. And he gave him the name. He said, I am. So this is a story that's well known to the Jews. When Jesus says, I am, like he's like, you know, I am God. And the people get it because right after he says that in verse uh, 59, it says, so they picked up stones to throw at him. Like they got what Jesus was saying about being God. And these are not little pebbles and they're not just trying to, you know, irritate him. We're talking stones. Like death is the goal because he just blasphemed because he claimed to be God. The original hearers got it. So we're left with this problem because Jesus doesn't allow us or anybody to say that he was just a neat guy, good moral teacher, had some principles to live by, a great prophet, because none of those other great men of God claimed to be God. And yet Jesus does. So what do we do with that? What do we do with that? with this claim to be God. Well, there's a um, theologian who's, who's vastly smarter than me. His name is um, C.S. Lewis. If you've heard of him, matter of fact, he writes a book, a number of books, but the one I'm thinking of is called Mere Christianity. If you've not read Lewis and you're looking for something a little deeper, I would highly recommend Mere Christianity. It's short. Um, it'll blow your brain. It's actually really excellent reading in my opinion. But um, in that, he, he unpacks this concept because he says, because Jesus claims to be God, it doesn't allow us the reality of, or it doesn't allow us the opportunity or ability to say he was just a good teacher or a good man. He says that there's really only three possibilities, and I'd like you to do something for me this morning. If you would find a pen, there should be some in your pew back in front of you, or uh, maybe you got one in your pocket. I'd like to have you write something on your hand, or on your forearm if you're more comfortable with that, or if you're like, I will not desecrate my body. That's fine, you could write it on paper if you're that. That's okay, I love you. Uh, but I'd love it on your hand, and there's, there's some purpose for this a little later, but I'd love it on your hand, if you can, if, if that freaks you out or your mom says no, that's okay. Um, three things I want you to write down, because this is what Lewis says. Lewis says we're really left with three uh, logical, rational options. And Lewis was an incredibly analytic guy. So if you're an engineer, if you're analytical, like you would really enjoy Lewis. He says three options. Number one, write this down for me. The word Lord. 
I'm holding this up like anybody can see that, but that's okay. The word Lord. He says it is a logical, rational possibility that Jesus is exactly who he said he was. Jesus claimed to be God. We've got that recorded in history books that he is claiming to be God. Jesus also, according to the Bible, did a bunch of miracles, did a bunch of things that would seem to prove that he was God. He fulfilled hundreds of prophecies that were uh, written about the person who was going to come and who was going to be the Messiah, the man from God. He, he accomplished those. So it's a, it's a logical, rational possibility that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be. Okay? Second word I'd like you to write down is the word lunatic. It is a rational, logical possibility that Jesus was a lunatic, that he was insane. What that means is that he thought he was God, he said he was God, but he wasn't God. But he thought he was God, but he wasn't. Tracking with me? Makes sense, right? So the challenge with this one, Lewis says, is that... Throughout history, Jesus' writings, his life, the things he did, the places he went, things that he said, have all been subjected to all kinds of psychological, psychiatric um, evaluations. Not, not Christian psychiatrists, psychologists, even just standard secular psychiatrists. His writings and his life have been subjected to studies from those guys and gals. And, and every single time, those guys and gals have come away from that saying that Jesus has done nothing that would indicate that he was mentally unstable, either chemical or, or uh, genetic or whatever. There was, there's no indication of mental instability in the guy. Because from somebody who's mentally unstable, we, we would maybe anticipate them saying something like, I'm God. But then they would turn around and say, I'm also a piece of toast. Or I think C.S. Lewis uses the illustration of a poached egg. He's English. Um, or well, a, a bunch of other things. You know, They would do things that would be consistent with folks who have mental instabilities. And Jesus simply doesn't. Matter of fact, his writings by these psychiatrists have been proven over and over again to be the most logical, concise, um, on the level, straightforward writings and sayings and teachings. Jesus doesn't teach like a person who's mentally unstable. Jesus' life, his approach, his mission, the way he went, went through life was very rational and reasonable. You don't expect that from somebody who is mentally unstable. So I would suggest, Lewis suggests that that's not an option. We could cross that out. He just doesn't come across as a lunatic. But there is a third option. The third word that I'd like you to write down is the word liar. It is possible, rationally possible, that Jesus was a liar. What that means is that Jesus knew he was not God, but went around saying he was God. Tracking with me? He knew he wasn't God, but he told everybody he was God for the money, I don't know, the popularity. Maybe people followed him. He, he liked that. He was a teacher who couldn't get a following, and so people were following him because he said these things. Here, here's the problem if we want to say that Jesus was a liar, if we want to believe that one and say that it's still logical. Jesus died, was arrested, was beaten, and died. The most horrible death possible at the time. At any point during that whole cycle, all Jesus would have had to have done is said, just kidding, I, I made it up, I was just lying, I was just in it for the donuts, like, I'm, I'm good, I'm done, I'm sorry, I take it back. 
literally. Had he said that, he probably would have been beaten more, but probably wouldn't have died. Probably would have let him go, because it makes sense. Rome keeps this guy alive, so people can keep pointing back to the liar. Okay? Jesus didn't do that. Who goes to death based on a lie? It's just it's not logical. And let alone the fact that there was this group of 12 and then 100 and even more that followed and really wrapped their lives around the reality of who Jesus was, at least what they believed that he was Lord. And those guys, gals, many of them died horrible deaths because of, of what they believed in Jesus. Maybe you can conceive of a guy who would die for his own lie, but in no way is somebody else going to die for my lie. Make sense? There's no way that, 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 that Darcy is going to go to death and, and beating and all that kind of stuff for a lie that I made up. And there is no way on the planet that Jesus could have kept his lie from his guys for three years. They hung out all the time, spent every waking moment together. They, they did everything together. Like, if Jesus was lying, that veneer would have cracked. There's just no way that you can maintain that for so long. Those followers would have brought that out and said that and walked away from that, and yet that didn't happen. So, Lewis would say, and I would agree with him, that liar is not really an option. Cross that out. So the challenge, if you, if you agree with Lewis's logic, if you're where I am in terms of my thinking, we're only left with really this one option. Because we can't say that he was just a good teacher, a good moral person, or a prophet, because he doesn't allow for that. He claimed to be God. It doesn't seem like he was crazy, and it doesn't seem like he was lying, so we're left with this reality of, oh man, then he is exactly who he said he was. Which really brings us then to the big question that Jesus asked his guys when he looked at him eyeball to eyeball and said, who do you say I am? And he looks us eyeball to eyeball and he says, so what about you? Who do you say I am? And do you believe it strongly enough that you're willing to wrap your whole life around it? Not just easy to throw out a word, but actually re- wrap your whole life around it. It's interesting because uh, uh, towards the end of Mark chapter 8 in verse uh, 34, Jesus talks a little bit about um, uh, what, this, what this looks like to, to wrap our lives around this. And he uses some language that's, that, that probably should scare us a little bit. Mark uh, eight thirty-four says, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, not just talking to the disciples, he's talking to everybody who's listening to him. He says, if anyone would come after me, follow me. Let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? This, this phrase, he says, take up your cross and follow me. We use that today, we use that language, and sometimes we, we use it when we have um, struggles. You know, we, we have a disease or we have an, an issue or a condition or a financial situation or a, <laughs> a jerk coworker, and we say, that's, that's my cross to bear. And, and I understand there's good intentions behind that, and I'm not knocking that, but I'm just going to say that's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus, when he says, take up your cross and follow me, I mean, the cross was a a device of execution, a death sentence. And so when he says, take up the cross, that'd be like, I I don't know, the modern language of walking the eight mile or or walking death row or (laughs) grab up your lethal injection syringe and follow me or grab the electric chair and follow me. It's a a mark of, of death. 
And for, for a lot of Jesus' original hearers, we're talking literal, physical death. They were martyred. And for lots of folks in our world today who live in places where Christianity is not embraced and it's hated, death is a reality to them as well. Literal, physical death. Jesus goes on in the past. He talks about not only being ready to die, like walking this death road, but he talks about losing your life. Because even if we live in a place where death probably isn't going to happen to us simply for being a Christ follower, certainly Jesus is talking about the concepts of death to self, death to my wants, death to my desires, death to my plans, and and a willingness to wrap my life around who Jesus is and what he wants for me. That's the challenge that we're up against. That's the reality of how this works. Am I willing? Do I believe in this strongly enough to wrap my whole life around it? Do I believe in Jesus strongly enough to wrap everything I have and everything I am around him? And I fear because, uh, because some, of, some of us have been in church maybe for a while and we've heard this stuff. We're like, yeah, 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 Chris, we get it. Move on, I'm ready to go. I'm hungry, lunch is coming. And, and, I, and I fear that a little bit. Because sometimes it's so easy. We, we look at our hand and we see the word Lord there. Like, yeah, I know, Jesus is Lord. I get it. Move on. Do we? Do I? Do I believe it strongly enough? I'm going to wrap my whole life around it. Am I willing to do that? Because that's the question that Jesus is asking his guys. The question that Jesus is asking us at the end of the day. When he says, so who do you say I am? saying, do you believe it strongly enough that you're going to wrap your whole life around it? It's interesting because uh, in a couple chapters, and, and we're going to end this morning this way. It's a fitting way to end. We're going to, we're going to end by taking communion. And, and it's interesting because um, in a couple chapters, that's what Jesus does with his guys. It's the very first communion. Sometimes you hear it called Lord's Supper or Last Supper. It's the very uh, first one that Jesus institutes. And, and it's very fitting because uh, it celebrates the res- this entire reality. It reminds us of the death of Christ. And whenever we think of Christ's death, we've got to think of his resurrection as well. If Jesus just stayed dead, we're, we're really wasting our time here this morning. But he didn't. He rose from the dead. And that's what we celebrate in communion. His death, which pays for our sin, but also his resurrection, which seals it. And communion is a very fitting thing. It reminds us, as Christ followers, this call to die to self and wrap ourselves around this reality of Jesus. And in Mark 14... Verse 22, this is, this is how this first communion went. It says, And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it. And he gave it to them, saying, Hey, take, this is like my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is like my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And so this is what we're going to do. I mean, they ate a little meal. We're going to eat a very little meal. And as the crackers and juice go by, you take those and you feel free to eat those and drink those whenever you want to. We're here for a while. We're going we're gonna to linger here for a little while. We're gonna, we're gonna, it's going to be a couple minutes. We're in no rush. You take when you feel ready to do that. His guys, after this supper with him, they went out and they sang a song and we're going to sing a song. And maybe as we sing that song, the question that I would just ask, I'd implore you to have in your brain is, who do I say this Jesus is? And am I really living in a way that says, I'm wrapping everything around that belief? They sang a song, they ate a meal, and then they went out on their journey with Jesus and finished it. And, and today we're going to eat a little, we're going to sing a little, and then, and then we're going to go out.
and, and continue on our journey with Jesus. My prayer is that we really press this question in. That as we leave here this morning, we are excited and jazzed about living a life wrapped around the reality of who Jesus is.